0: Alright, so we are continuing on looking at this prophetic destruction over Babylon that is being foretold here in Revelation 18. This picture of uh, the prophecies of Babylon's doom, we've, we've, they've looked at those, they've now passed. Tonight we begin looking at the lamentations over Babylon's destruction. These are the lamentations of those who, who have received something from her. They have loved her with an affection. They've committed adultery with her, the world system. And now they see her destruction and they weep over it. They, they lament over the destruction of Babylon. And that's what we're going to be looking at, these three lament or really four lamentations over Babylon the destruction of Babylon, and we get that word lamentations because it comes from the verb to lament, that just means to weep over, to cry over, there's actually a book in the Bible called Lamentations, and the reason why it's called Lamentations is because the book is written by Jeremiah, who is lamenting over the destruction, uh, the coming destruction of Israel. He's lamenting over Israel's apostasy. They're, they're running the rebellion from their God. And so he weeps over it. And we see a similar lamenting tonight. Not from a prophet of God. Not over a city that was once righteous turning evil. But we see the world itself. Those who sought to take from, to be lovers with, to find their hope and their security in this world system. They lamenting over the fall of this city that gave them so much joy and so much pleasure in this earth, in the earthly sense. Now, this text is what we call an inclusio, and that's just a rhetorical device used in literature that has a, a, a statement, a, a set of sentences that begin and end with the same set of words or the same thought. And what an inclusio does when you see that where a story or a a teaching begins and ends with the same set of terms is what it does is it's saying that everything in between those two repeating statements are meant to teach that reality. So for instance, the opening statement here of, of verse 11, you see here where it says, Alas, alas, great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And then look over at verses 19 and 20. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. So you see this inclusion, and what that means is that everything else in between those two statements is a description of the lamentation over the fact that Babylon has been destroyed. And so that is what is in picture here. So let's go ahead and read it. Revelation 18, verses 9 through 20. We read, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls." the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with golds, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste." Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just one second place that you're going to, you can go ahead and probably put a finger there that we're going to be looking a lot at tonight. And where this language comes out of is Ezekiel chapter 26 through 28. And Ezekiel chapter 26 to 28 is God's judgment on a city called Tyre. Now, Tyre was a Phoenician city that was very important. What made Tyre such a powerful city was its, its economic power. It was a city of profound commercial prosperity. It, was, it wasn't a city really given to war. Not really even a city given too much to idolatry in the sense of, of going after, like, worshiping all these other false gods. It, it wasn't a city that was given to immorality. There wasn't a tons of brothels and prostitutes and things like that in that sense. What made Tyre powerful and set apart was its commercial prosperity its money, its finances, the fact that it was wealthy beyond all imagination made it feel like it was untouchable. Rather than having a pantheon of of sculptures to Artemis or to Baal or to Molech or to false gods like you found in so many other places, Tyre didn't need any of that. Because the problem with Tyre is that in all of its own prosperity and wealth, it simply believed that it was God. We don't need any other gods because we're God. And this is what we read in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, 1-10. through 10. This is the prophecy against why God is going to bring destruction against Tyre. This is what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No, no secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasures. By your great wisdom in your trade, you've increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of nations. And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. That prophecy against Tyre and their, the nature of their state, this wicked state that they had come into with their wealth and their wisdom. So two things about Tyre that we're told there. One, their wealth was unlike any other. It was They were full of wealth and power and prestige and prosperity because of their wealth. But also, they had a plethora of knowledge. They had information available to them really like no other because of their wealth. They could gain access to information like so much more, which is why he said, you, you had more knowledge than Daniel. The picture is, is that you had so much knowledge because you could obtain it with your mass amount of money. And because of your wealth and your worldly knowledge, you have made yourself to be a god. And therefore, you will be destroyed. And notice how God says he's going to destroy Tyre. He says, I'm going to do it by raising up foreign nations to kill you. You know the nation that he would use to destroy Tyre? Babylon. I was going to say China. Yeah, well, some might think that. But it was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. So he uses to destroy Tyre. And what's so amazing is that Tyre becomes a picture, a foreshadow, of the worldly Babylon itself. Now, why is that significant? We've already seen from those prophecies regarding the demise or the doom of Babylon that what is God going to use to destroy Babylon? He's going to use the kings of the earth. He's going to use the nations literally to turn against itself. He's going to use evil to destroy evil. Which is exactly what he did with Tyre. With Nebuchadnezzar. God uses all of these systems and now we see the lament over her destruction. But I find Tyre such a fitting expression. Especially for us in the West who think that our economic prosperity and our access to information make us untouchable. We're just like Tyre was. We made ourselves to sit in the seat of God, it says, little g. We don't need a God. I've got Google and get all the information I need. Who who, who needs us? We have wealth unimaginable. Heck, in this country, even the poor people would be rich in most other nations. We have wealth unimaginable. And this notice, this isn't an attack primarily on money, as we'll see a little bit later on. It's an attack on the love of it. That says, I gotta have it. It's what makes me untouchable. and That's what Babylon has come into this world system. That the world made love to her and made it made, went after her because she was a picture of worldly wisdom and a picture of wealth. And that's why the kings loved her. And that's why the merchants embraced her. And that's why the workers didn't want her to go because she was a symbol of security and meaning and hope, all of which were nothing. The city became an idol itself. That's why it didn't need any. It was an idol. And that, in many ways, is what's become so much of the Western world. The Western world may quote-unquote say that it's an atheistic worldview or a worldview that's agnostic, that doesn't have God. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know it's full of gods, little G. It's full of it. It's full of, of systems of worship because of its proposed wealth and wisdom, all of which is ultimately empty in the sight of God. And so we see now, after her destruction here, we see that those who destroyed her, who were a part of her, now weep over her. That that seems shocking, doesn't it? Why would those that God had used to bring her destruction weep over her? And the, rea- the reason why I think it is is because they have come to realize that the judgment that they have been used to bring about Babylon will be the judgment that they will face because of their love with her. They've come to realize that that which they have been used for is now going to be used against them. They weep over it. And this is the picture of depravity. That even this world that they've been used to destroy, they still love her so much they weep over her. Rather than repenting and turning and longing after the God who has brought this to nothing, instead they weep over it. That is sin. It is sin when you see people outside of Senate buildings weeping over the right to murder. Weeping over causes of wickedness. When you see people lamenting and weeping in classrooms because a professor said something that hurt their feelings. Weeping over the fact that, that they need more safe spaces To be be kept from anything that might harm them or hurt their feelings. This is so common. It's not just in universities. I saw one of these signs the other day in an Air Force building. This is a safe space for you to feel okay and comfortable. These are supposed to be warriors. We're creating safe spaces for their emotions. This is the reality of what's happening with sin. Even that which they were used to destroy, they weep. One, because they know that it will reflect the judgment that they are going to face. And two, because they are so sad to see what they love be crushed. And this is the great power of idolatry. That in spite of seeing the the power of Yahweh, the power of God over the idols of the world, and to see the way that he destroys the idols of man over and over and over again, rather than waking up and turning and saying, Only he can save, only he is truly God, they lock down all the tighter. That is the nature of depravity. And unless God comes in there and, and opens the eyes of man to see and transforms this idol making heart that we have because of the fall, we'll never see. And will continue running even after broken idols. You remember that story where the Philistines, they capture the ark. And they take it back to their place. And they have a a, a statue of Dagon there, their God. And every day they come in, what's happened? The statue of their false God has been fallen over and a piece of it's broken off. And rather than going... We should believe in this Yahweh because clearly this statue is not a real God. He keeps destroying it. We're not even in here. What do they do? we got to take this Ark of the Covenant back. They take the Ark of the Covenant back, drop it off, and go back to worshiping their false God. That is the epitome of the folly of sin. And that's what you see in these weeping kings, merchants, and sailors in this story they weep because of the hardness of their hearts. And instead of seeing the power of God's judgment as a righteous act, they just despise Him all the more because He's taken what they loved. So here, let's look at this little by little. Verse 9-10, through we see the lament of the kings where they lament the loss of their lover. They lament lament the loss of their lover. Verse 9 and 10, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Notice, the kings of the earth, these are those who have committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. They weep and they wail. That, I mean, that literal mourning cry, that, that, that gnashing of teeth, that wailing, that's what they're doing over the loss of Babylon. Why? Because she was, her, she was their adulterous lover. She's where they, they, they loved and they went after her because her in all of her worldly wisdom and worldly prosperity, they could dabble with her and take from her as they pleased. They could get in bed with her as they wanted and take what they needed for their own uh, self-aggrandizement, for their own self-promotion. They could babble in the world. They could go after Jezebel all the while being polluted by her influence. And even though these kings are the one that had been used by God to bring about the world's destruction in an attempt to create a new one, one in the image of their master, the dragon, they will not be able to do so. They'll be crushed before it could happen. They'll destroy the city. They'll wail over her. Like a, a man who's been forced to strangle his lover. They will weep and they will wail over her. And this is exactly what Ezekiel had prophesied over Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 16 and 17. He says, Then all the princes of the sea will step down for their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say, How, have you, how, how you have perished You who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants imposed their their terror on all inhabitants. Uh, Ezekiel 27, verse 33. When your wares came from the sea, you satisfied many peoples. With your abundant wealth and merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. These worldly leaders here that are pictured now weep and mourn over the loss of their lover. This system that they had committed adultery with over and over again, instead of having a faithful relationship with the bridegroom of heaven, instead of being a ruler that leads in righteous principle under the King of kings and Lord of lords, these individuals made love to this worldly system in order to gain from her riches and fame and fortune. And now as they look at her destroyed by sulfur and fire with the smoke of judgment rising from her they weep knowing that not only will they face the same judgment as their lover but over the reality that all of their love affairs ultimately meant nothing but destruction. It meant nothing But destruction. I have seen a number of men, I've counseled countless of them, who, all because they thought the grass was greener on the other side, began to have affairs. And I've watched those men think what they were doing was fun, pleasurable. And I've watched those same men weep like infants in my office when their wife and children are no longer there. And that is the wages of sin. Death to relationships, death to everything about you that had meaning and purpose and value, total, complete destruction of it. And that's what's happening here. Not, they, they see that their affairs and, uh, and their love for this world and they're seeking for power and wealth and riches to lead and to govern the world now stands in, in a, a heap of ashes and with it, all of their hopes, all of their aspirations for a future world, for a truly new world under their image and their power. They know that the king of kings has spoken. And they know that their time is drawing near. And this is what's so important about this lamentation of all of these individuals who made their affairs with the world. God destroys the system that they idolized, that they love, that they found security in because even in their judgment, God is so just, he's teaching them a lesson. He's showing them the vanity of the system they gave their affection to. You rejected me and you loved the world. Now look at her. Look at her for who she really is. She who you saw adorned with scarlet and linen and, 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 and purple linens and gold and jewelry. You who, who saw a world that was full of prosperity and all these nice things that, were, that, were, that, that appealed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All of those things that appealed to it that you found attractive. Look at her now. She's an ash sheep. And they weep over her. The kings lament the loss of their lover. And now we see the lament of the merchants. Verses 11-14. through And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, Cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls or some translations human lives. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Never to be found again. Here in the lament of the merchants, we see them lamenting the loss of their pleasures. You see, everything that they want sold in order to gain money to go and indulge in all of these pleasures of the things that they were selling no longer exist. There's no one left to buy from them. All those things that they thought will continue to fill them with pleasure and excitement and passion and joy, all of these worldly things that they put their hope in, that they put their love in, they're no longer there. They're no longer there. They've been destroyed. They're left naked and bare. Because that's all you are before a holy God. All those things that you spent all your life trying to sell so that you could make money, so that you could live all of these pleasures and have all of these things. All that time you wasted Just fighting and pouring over things in order to get the very next dollar to just go a little bit more. To just have a little bit more than your neighbor and the person next to you. To try and prop you up thinking that I just need a little bit more money and I'll be able to finally get that hope that I want. I just need a little bit more money and I'll be able to have those pleasures that I'm longing for. All of this in this moment has been laid totally bare because none of it's left. All those worldly pleasures that they sold and they found uh, joy and peace in are shown to be nothing. They've been wiped out by the judgment of God. Ezekiel 27, another one of these prophetic pictures here. Ezekiel 27, 36. The merchants among the people hiss at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. I look at verse 14, it says, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. This is, I think, the Bible talks about hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think part of that is for a few reasons. One, it's the searing of the conscience, the fact that they've rejected God. That's why those who've been given more light face a, a harsher penalty, the Bible says, because their conscience, their more conscience will burn all the grow greatly. Because they, they, would, they will see all of those times of which Christ was put before them and how much they rejected Him in their sin. But I also think this weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, Maybe let me try to give you a picture, because I I think this is one that probably fits well with something we've probably all experienced at one time. Have you ever been around a person who was addicted and was trying to come off of it? And they start scratching. And they got to move, and they got to start itching. To the point, if they're very addicted, maybe it's heroin, maybe it's very hard alcoholism or whatever it creates physiological changes in their body. Seizures, strokes, vomiting. I mean, you name it, that's what happens when people are often coming off of this addiction because they can't get it. They want it, but they can't get it. Their love, this thing that gives them pleasure in that moment, that little hit of dopamine that makes them feel good and lost for a moment, they can't have it and they want it so bad, but it's not there. I think that's what the weeping and gnashing of hell will also be. This love for worldly pleasure, and they'll find none. This longing for the things that gave their flesh a sense of a a taste of dopamine, a taste of that, that good desire, that those feelings of goodness that they want more of and, and they want to have it and I don't think this will just disappear, I think they'll be there and they'll want it and they'll love it that, that's the things that they delight in it says the things their soul longs for and they won't find it that's what hell will be so often we just have this picture of like just people burning Man, that that's that's shallow. It's way worse than that. It's way worse than that. Because it's not just it's not external. I mean, there may be external flames, but I think the greater burning will be here, inside, in the heart when everything that you know, all of the times you rejected God will be played before you over and over again and and the realities of all the things that you want other than God will not be found for you. The only thing there is is pain and sorrow and heartbreak. There is no pleasure. There is no delicacy. There's just destruction. Over and over and over again. And I think the reason why these merchants now weep is because they realize that this fact that the world that was before them, this giver of pleasure that's now been taken from them is merely a foreshadow of what their eternity will be. There will be no more pleasure for you. It's been taken. Because you didn't find it in the one who alone can give pleasure. Notice the way that they make money. They make it through their trade. And one of the things that it says there at the very end, through slaves, that is, human souls. This was a text that was used by many abolitionists in the 19th century to show how God in His Word, that though He had written in a time when slavery was at, because for the most part, slavery has been the rule of society. Overwhelmingly, you can't find... Any group at all throughout history prior to the 19th century that didn't have slavery? Doesn't exist. Every human culture and tribe has had slavery. That's why anybody who thinks like America invented it, like losing their mind. It's like, no. It's all it's not been until literally the last 250 years or so that it's been gone. Why? Because Christians. And what was one of the texts they appealed to here? Of God talking about this wicked system that people are so hungry for more prosperity, for more wealth, for more pleasure, that they're literally willing to sell their own neighbor. Sell them to be murdered, to be raped, to be abused, to be killed. Because guess what? It means more money for me. It means weapons for me. It means that I get a spot on the fur trade, whatever that may be. I get it. Who cares about these people? Who cares if they look like me? They're only as good as what they can do for me. And Brothers and sisters, if you think that that idea stopped with slavery, you're fooling yourself. People take advantage of people every day. They take advantage of their neighbor every day to the point that there's a reason why there's doctors and major medical universities promoting gender transition surgeries for children. You know why they do? Because there's money in it. Do you know why they pump out vaccines like they're nothing no matter what without any... Because there's money in it. It's not a shot on vaccines. I've been vaccinated about through many different things. It's simply going. There's a reason why they just pump these things out and only certain units get uh, uh, FDA approved and others don't. Why? Because there's money in it. I think if they found the cancer cure tomorrow, we'd we'd never hear about it. There's too much money in it. There's too much money in it. Why do you think they only advertise? When's the last time you saw an advertisement for celery? For broccoli? For regular milk? What do you see? Happy Meals. Everything else. Coke products. All this. uh, why, Why do they sell that? Because it's sure good when you're spending all that money on insulin. It's all a part of the system. It's no love for neighbor. You're only as good as what my bottom line is. That's why they murder babies. Why? Because it's profitable. There's money in it. Why do you think there's this pro-life movement, quote unquote, that is the number one killer of abolition bills across the states? You do know that it's overwhelmingly the this... What I call the corporate pro-life movement—not the regular pro-life person, but the corporate pro-life movement—there's been almost 12 states that have put forth abolition, meaning the total, complete abolition of abortion in this state. You know who the number one killer of was? Pro-life legislators. What? Why? Because if you kill, if, if the cause is gone, goes away. That's not a way you can win votes anymore. That's not a way that you can appeal to your constituents. That's why these senators and these Republicans promise you everything and go do nothing. Because if they've actually got something done, there might not be a reason to vote for them next time. It's all part of the same system. And they continue to buy into it, not because they, they hate their neighbors. You're only as good as what you can do for me. Which is why Christ's teaching is so radical. That's why his his teachings are so radically counterintuitive to the world. Where the world says, use individuals that can help increase your bottom line. Christ says, give up whatever you have in order to take care of others. Like, take care of others. If I bless you with wealth, it's only so that you can bless other people with it. I may make you a millionaire. Wonderful. You better use it for people. You better use it for the church. You better take care of others. You better take, if if, if I make you a CEO or a business operator, you better treat people right. You better make sure they get paid a fair wage. You better make sure that you treat them like human beings, that their families are provided for and cared for, not as merely cogs in your wheel, in your machine. See it all the time. And God here says that that system will be destroyed. And these people who made all their wealth over it and all their pleasures gained from it, it's going to stand there before them in ash heap, in smoke. And they will weep that it's gone because they know that it foreshadows their forever. They love money. Because it promotes in them this desire for what they can do for themselves. I can gain. If I just have enough money, I can finally be happy. I can finally get what I want. I can finally have all these pleasures that I didn't get to have. That's why you end up seeing these people who are NFL players and stars made millions of dollars who are bankrupt now. There's a reason for it. Because they did it because they wanted pleasures. And they longed for it. And before you know it, you realize, oh, that's gone. It's not there anymore. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've wandered away and they've pierced themselves with many pains. The idea is, right, there's a, an old saying, more money, more problems. It's the idea here. They went after this stuff for the love of it. Some of the best examples of this, right, and, and all of this we find in Scripture is a sense of this longing to, to hold on to money, to hold on to it because it gives me what I need. And if I don't have it, I I, I can't trust God to provide for me. I have to do it myself. That's why the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Because what springs up from it is a desire to be self-dependent. I don't need God. I can take care of myself. And that's what creates this product of evil. Because what is the root of that? It's pride. Pride. It's pride. I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I can have my own throne and rule my own kingdom. I just need enough funds to do so. I can have all the pleasures that I can buy. And here they see all of those worldly pleasures destroyed. And That's why Jesus said, Don't lay up your treasures where moth and rust corrupt. Because one day they'll be destroyed to nothing for those who loved them. Lastly, or excuse me, thirdly, we see the lamenting of their loss of security. Verse 15-17, The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. This comes directly out of Ezekiel chapter 27. I'm not going to read the whole text. Verses 7 to 25. And if you go tonight and read Ezekiel 26 to 28, you'll just see this whole thing. This whole picture played out with the destruction of Tyre. All these things that they found security in, right? So we've seen their love affair with the world. We've seen how the world was the place for their pleasures. Now we see how the world was the place of their security. We had all this money, all this wealth. And boy, there is nothing more that makes the flesh feel secure than being rich. Right? Once again, this is not an attack on being rich in and of itself. No more than it's like, hey, I have a full fridge. It's an attack on the the reality or, or the thought process that says my bank account is where my security is. And as long as it's packed, I'm safe. I'm untouchable. And I can't let it go. I can't let it slip. I have to get more. Because I need more security. I need to hold on to this. If I lose it, I'll be nothing. I'll have nothing. I'll I'll be a nobody again. So I have to hold it tight and do whatever it takes to keep it. I can't let it go. Because it's my security. When I read this picture of how they wept over all this system of wealth that has just been destroyed in a single hour by the judgment of God. And how they wept and they grieved over the security that this wealth gave them being now gone. There's only one story I could think of and that's the story of the rich young ruler. Remember the story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus says, Lord, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him and I'll just read it here out of Matthew 19 why do you ask me about what is good there's only one who is good and if you would enter life keep the commandments now Jesus is not teaching a work based salvation here Jesus is teaching a lesson he says which ones already they were on the wrong part because when he heard Jesus say keep the commandments the young man should have said who can do that There's no one who can perfectly keep the commandments. Jesus would have said, you're right. I have. I will. I need to point it into him. Nevertheless, he goes, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I hope we'll see that young man in heaven. Maybe he came back. I don't know. Maybe he did. We're not given that. We're just given this. He walked away from Jesus. Why? Because his possessions were too many. The thought of losing his possessions, the thought of losing all of this worldly wealth that he had made him sorrowful. It made him more sorrowful than losing Jesus. Jesus. That's the picture here. These individuals are not sorrowful that they have brought disrepute to God. They're not sorrowful that they've rebelled against God. They're not sorrowful that they've made their wealth and their possessions an idol. They're sorrowful just because it's gone. This is what we call worldly sorrow or worldly grief. They're not sorry. It's like when, your kid, when, you, when you catch your kid doing something bad and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You're not sorry you did it. <laughs> you're sorry you got caught. right? There's a difference there. That's not repentance. This is worldly grief, worldly sorrow. They're just mad that their possessions are gone. They don't care that they didn't want God. They don't care that they didn't want the Lord. They just are mad and sad that that which gave them security has been taken from them. They didn't get the choice to give it away and give Christ. Well, they they did in their own way as Christ offered the gospel to them through the preaching of the world and through the preaching of His church in the world. But they rejected it. And they will walk straight into eternal judgment. Sorrowful. Because they had many possessions which are now gone forever. Finally, We see them lamenting the reversal of their fortunes. 17 And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, trying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has... Been been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against In the Bible, when you see people weeping and mourning in sackcloth and ashes, it talks about. And that's the picture here. They're making themselves to be nothing, not because they've repented to God, but because of the realities of their loss. The realities that their fortunes have now been reversed. Because notice what's happened here in this text. They were once the ones who were high and mighty. They were the ones who had all the stuff. They were the ones who brought war and suffering against the saints. And now the saints are the ones who have the good things. They have glory. Whereas the world has judgment. This is that final reversal that will happen. As even though the church goes through many tribulations in this present evil age our reward is eternal life. Our reward is glory. But for those who simply seek lives of comfort do worldly affairs, worldly pleasure, worldly security, they may have temporal pleasure now. But it will be taken forever. And so though we face hardships now, we get an eternity of glory in Christ. Whereas those Who have abandoned any kind of worldly hardship and seek to live a world of earthly temporal delight, they will get an eternity of judgment. And this will be the great reversal that is being pictured here. They literally know it. They know that these saints, which they have been destroyed, are the ones who are going to receive glory. That's what I said. Remember going back. Why does God destroy the worldly system? before the eyes of the sinners, and then bring judgment upon them. He's teaching them something. And He's showing them that in all of their efforts to put down the church, to shut down the gospel message, to close off the light of Christ into the world, that all of it has been in vain. That all of it has failed ultimately. And that is why when the Lord judges them, they will give Him a hearty yes and amen because they will just see just how just and righteous His judgment is against their wicked depravity. For their rebellion of His Word, his reject, their rejection of truth, and their oppression of His people. And they will know His justice. And as they weep, the saints will celebrate. It's what Jeremiah 51 verse 48 says. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon. For the destroyer shall come against them out of the north, declares the Lord. The saints will sing. Heaven will celebrate over the destruction of Babylon. Why? Because where the world that weeps sees loss, the saints see the reality of justice and righteousness coming to pass forever. They know that with the destruction of that system, God has vindicated them. He has brought righteousness. He has brought justice. And He is about to bring the greatest reality of all, a new heavens and new earth where the world laments in judgment, what's the beginning of Revelation 19 going to give us? A same picture of this reversal. The saints will be celebrating the the marriage supper of the Lamb. While the world is, is, is uh, is gnashing and weeping over the reality of their judgment, the saints in glory are celebrating and thriving at the table with the Lord. So though they faced hardships in this life, if you're in Christ and you persevere faithful to the end by His grace, you get eternity of glory. You get eternal pleasure, eternal love, eternal security, eternal joy. Whereas those who sought to find it in this world at the rebellion of God will only find judgment. They will only find sorrow. They will find themselves empty and bare. And the only things left in their account will be the full wrath of God. Revelation eleven eighteen: 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is that time And we will see the finality of that judgment in the next text next week in verses 21 through 24 as Babylon is done completely in God's judgment. He will celebrate with the feast of the saints in glory but only after he brings the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Leaving one final description in Revelation 20 of the destruction of Satan and death. All that goes after the world will only be left with sorrow. But those who go after Christ will be left with nothing but joy. That's the call. So here's our closing takeaways First, worldly sorrow does not produce repentance. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7:10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, godly grief, what's that? That's that picture of being broken over the reality that you've offended a holy God, of being broken that you sinned against God and that you long to make it right. That's conviction. That's what leads you to repentance. To say, Lord, you alone can forgive me. You alone can bring salvation. God uses conviction by His grace to open our eyes to the rescue that can come alone in Christ Jesus. That's godly grief. Worldly grief is just the reality of, man, I'm sad that the things I love are gone. I'm sad that, you know, that, that... my, my favorite Coke and my favorite soda is gone. I'm sad that my bank account's empty. I'm, I'm sad that I got caught for doing bad. This is not God. This is not, that's not godly grief. That's just grief that you got caught. That's what distinguished, in many ways, David from Saul. When Saul realized how far he had rebelled against God, what did he do? He dug in and ultimately he killed himself. Fell on his own sword. Basically sealing his fate. David, after he sinned, what did he do? He turned to God. Psalm 51, created in me a clean heart, O oh God. That's the difference. One was worldly grief, worldly sorrow. So much so, that after he had been indicted by God for performing the sacrifices on his own behalf, apart from Samuel, Saul just doubled down on it. He, he could have repented, but he didn't. He doubled down and went further into his rebellion. That's what sin does. Whereas the one who has, is after God's own heart, like David, sees the reality of what they have done against God. And they turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me for what I've done to you. You see, the, the greatest picture of the difference between worldly grief and godly grief Godly grief says, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done to you. I've sinned against you. You know what worldly grief does? God, look at what you've done to me. You ever heard people like you ever when you are getting onto your kids growing up and they blame you for not getting to do something? It's like they're grounded and you're the bad guy. <laughs> you're so mean. It's like you're the one who did something. Why are you mad at me? That's that little sin in that heart of theirs. It's that sin in my three-year-old when she's standing, or my four-year-old, when she's standing in the corner and she's screaming at me like I'm the bad one. It's like, no, you're it didn't. There's for you. It's that little sin in her inner. That's what's happening here, right? That's why it, that's why it says they, they never repented earlier on. It's not because they ever feel sorry that they sinned against God. They're simply sorry that God would take away what they loved. They never wanted God. They're just mad when He took it away from them. And I see that a whole lot with people. Notice, after everything was taken with, from Job, what did his wife say to him? Curse God and curse God, right? Curse God and die. Job said no. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, so much of the world wants to operate on the mentality of Job's wife. Something bad happens, it's God's fault. He did it. Blame him, hate him. I hear that all the time. But with no thought to ever say, oh, what I have done to God. The fact that I'm even breathing is a blessing for what I've done to God. That's God the and that produces repentance. Secondly, beware what you treasure up. Beware what you treasure up. Do not love the world. This is what John writes in 1 John 2, 15-17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. That's what we watched, we just saw in that scene. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when John is saying, do not love the world and things in the world, he's not talking about people. Of course you love people. You love them with spirit and truth. You love them with the word of God. You love them with righteousness sake. That's not what he's talking about when he says do not love the world. He's talking about Babylon. The worldly system. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. Don't love those things which seek to either compete with God or draw you away from them. So be care what you treasure up. Be careful what you treasure up. Be, beware what you treasure up. Because what you give your your heart to, your time to, that's what you love. Let it be Christ first. Thirdly, spiritual disciplines exist to break worldly dependency. So Pastor Freddie is beginning a class on Wednesday nights on spiritual disciplines. The necessity of, of learning how to discipline ourselves in the Spirit, in the Word of God... As a way to grow in our godliness, to grow in our faithfulness towards the Lord, and to break our dependency on the world. That's why we pray. That's why we fast. It breaks our dependency on the flesh. So that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What did he mean by discipline my body? I mean, he means he kept it sanctified. He kept it holy. He kept it for the Lord. He he disciplined himself in prayer, in fasting, uh, in being in the Word, in memorizing Scripture, in studying, in stewardship. He kept himself disciplined so that he wouldn't go off after the world and, in doing so, disqualify himself as a minister of the gospel. We need to be disciplined. Lastly, this text shows us how God will vindicate every act of wickedness or persecution brought against His people. God will vindicate. God will be the judge. God will be the one who brings vengeance and vindication at the last day. In other words, we don't need to. It's not our place to raise the sword against wickedness. God will. And that's why Paul writes in Romans twelve nineteen beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord look at the end of or look at verse 20 again rejoice over her o heaven you saints and apostles and prophets for god has give, given judgment for you against her god will repay When you try to get even, what you're really doing is trying to be God. We're not called to get even. We're called to give Christ. God will repay. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that's so wonderful. Because in a world full of injustice, the things that you go, how can that be okay? How can that be right? How could that person get off so easy? How could this happen over and over again? How could that evil, wicked person get off on a technicality? How could that happen? You can know with absolute certainty God's going to take care of it. It's all said and done. The scales of justice will be perfectly balanced in the courtroom of Christ. God will repay. So you don't have to. You can just offer forgiveness and offer Christ. And be free to love, knowing that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And as we've seen tonight, He will execute it perfectly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much. And we pray, God, that in our own lives, that we would... Have, a, have our affections for the things of this world, the wicked things, the things which seek to lure us away from you, God, I, I pray that you would break those affections. That you, would, that you would allow us to see in those things or any things that we might have, any blessings that you've given us, our career, our finances, uh, our home, all of these things that you've given us for security. Lord, let us first and foremost always see them as gifts that come from you. And then secondly, as instruments of your mercy so that we can bless others. Never let them become idols. Never let them become objects that lure us away from you. Secondly, Lord, I pray that you will continue to produce a godly grief in us when we do wrong not worldly sorrow for being caught for actions or for simply not wanting to give it up and being angry over it, but but producing us a heart of repentance, God, that daily seeks to lay aside every sin and and weight which clings so closely so that we can better run the race set before us in Christ and and, and to, to have a heart that daily has a trajectory pointed solely to you, God. God, help us there. Lord, help us grow in our disciplines by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word. Daily empower us to be disciplined in our prayer life. Disciplined as fasters. Disciplined in stewardship and giving. Disciplined in our serving of others. Disciplined in the way in which we we look to Your Word and are diligent and faithful in studying it. God, help us be disciplined in order that we could break the dependency that we have on the world. And lastly, God, help us to be reminded day by day that though the wrong... Seem also so strong. You are the ruler yet. And you will be perfect in your justice. That nothing in this world that happens will not have been perfectly vindicated either in the courtroom of judgment or at the cross of Calvary. It will be perfectly dealt with. Because of that, we can be free to forgive. We can be free to love we can be free to offer Christ. And Lord, that alone should always be our answer even to the most wicked injustices of the world is that Christ alone, hope, peace, salvation is found. And that hope is available for any and every sinner that by your grace would come to you in salvation. Let that be our message knowing that you will vindicate your people. You will do right by every wrong. You will be just. You will be faithful. And for that, we trust you, and we live for Christ. Help us go do that by your grace and your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.